When Tom and I started planning out the second season, we wanted to dig deep into why people do what they do with the focus on the gig economy and novel ways entrepreneurs have been able to brand themselves in niche markets. But when the global pandemic hit, we knew we had to quickly switch gears. And when we saw racial pandemics shake up the social climate, we knew season two had to focus on the topics at the forefront of every important conversation instead. As we wrap season two, we'd like to air the conversation we shared with negotiation expert Fotini Iconomopoulos right before COVID. Fotini gave us incredible insight into what it takes to negotiate effectively in and out of the workplace. As we head into new phases of reopenings around the world, Fotini's advice can help us understand our worth and how to ask for what we want. This truly is the art of negotiation. Fotini, thank you so much for joining us. You're nicknamed The Negotiator. How did you become a professional negotiator? Or should I ask, when did you know you were good at it and could turn it into a career? Was this kind of like a childhood thing where you were known as the best debater in class? Like no one says, I'm going to be a professional negotiator when I grow up. But (laughs) I think I learned by osmosis. Like I was just surrounded by a big fat Greek dad who negotiated everything. And I just assumed that was the norm. So why wouldn't I try to negotiate everything. And I was nicknamed by him. Like every time I stepped in to like defend somebody or get involved in something, he'd be like, we don't need to hear from your negotiator, like pipe down. And that just kind of continued in my career. I went into manufacturing and I came out of my MBA and I started working for L'Oreal and I was negotiating with Walmart on a regular basis. And I didn't really consider it negotiation. I just thought it was sales. I thought it was just relationship building. And in hindsight, now I realize that is a huge part of negotiating. That's all under the umbrella of. But it wasn't until a development company that was hired to train us, who put us through the ringer in this negotiation training said to me, you really need to be doing what we do. Anytime I'd been under some type of training, whether with L'Oreal or any other company I worked for, I was always pulled aside by the facilitator and said, you need to be doing something different. This is this is not for you. Like you are meant for something else. And I really didn't know what they meant. I was like, please tell me what that is. They didn't really know until that training company went, you should really be doing this for a living. And I was like, yeah, sure. Someday when I've got more experience. And they said, no, no, now, seriously. And that's how it all started. So I joined a consulting firm and I worked for them for five years. And then after that, I decided I needed to change some stuff in my life and decided to quit that job. And I've been doing it on my own for the last five years. So it's been a a really interesting decade. So what do you think that when you were at those events and you met different people that said, you got to be doing this, what was it that I saw in you? I really love teaching people. I think that's part of it. I love facilitating. I love presenting. Like put me in front of a room and I light up. Have me answering people's questions. And I really love seeing people flourish. I love empowering them. I love coaching them. And I think that was always a big piece of every job that I did. So even when I was in school, I was put in like the the specialized gifted program or even in my regular classroom, they kind of went, hey, take this other kid under your wing. You know, you can be a tutor for them. Or I would do my job at L'Oreal and 80% of the time and 20% of the time I'd be working on special projects. So there was always something I needed to keep busy and I needed to keep challenged. And I think that was a big piece of it. I loved teaching people. And I never was cut out to teach children because I think I'd get too frustrated too quickly. But there was this piece of me that really wanted to see people succeed. And I think negotiation is just the subject area where 
it's so important in every facet of life. If you can master that, it's a life skill. It's not just sales. It's not just relationship building. It's not something you do just in a boardroom. You do it every single day. And I, and I think that's something that is so valuable. And I love watching people flourish while they do it. It's interesting that you say this is something people do every single day. Is negotiating something that we do, but we're not aware of? But when we're actually faced with that opportunity to negotiate and better whatever situation or circumstance that we're in, we kind of hold ourselves back a bit. I think when you consciously know you're going into it, you hold yourself back. When you don't realize you're doing it, you're probably doing it better than you realize. So if you're somebody who travels on public transit, you're negotiating for your physical space. You know, just driving into this office today, I was on the road negotiating for my space in the lane, preventing people from cutting me off. When you're spending your time around children, you're likely negotiating all the freaking time and you don't realize it. As soon as somebody says to you, go negotiate for your job offer or go negotiate for this return or a discount or whatever, all of a sudden that's when people freeze because they don't consciously want to go into it, but they don't realize they're actually doing a great job of it a lot of the time. It kind of reminds me of sales. People say sales isn't for everyone. It's not an industry that everyone can succeed in, but we forget that we sell all the time, especially on social media. You know, We're sharing things that we like. We're sharing things that are improving our day-to-day lives. But when we actually have to do it for a living or finances are in play, we kind of freeze up. We're salespeople. We are selling ourselves. We are tribal beings. In our caveman and woman days, we wanted to be with other people. And you're selling yourself constantly. You might not be doing it with a a label or a business card, but you're doing it all the time. And negotiation is part of that process. Richard and I actually talked about this before, specific to sales. And obviously, negotiating would be a key component of sales. Why do you think it is that people get awkward when you have to start talking about numbers or when you have to start talking about my interests versus what your interests might be? It seems like a lot of people might think it's a me versus you or us versus them versus trying to find just mutually beneficial circumstances that will just make both of our lives a little bit better. Why is it that we have this discomfort when it comes to negotiation? I think there's a misconception that all negotiations are competitive. And when I say that, it means that whatever I take, you lose. And whatever you take, I lose. So if I go into it with that mindset, it's going to make me really uncomfortable to feel like I'm taking something off of your plate or to feel like I'm robbing you of something. And there are circumstances where it is going to be competitive. If you're buying a souvenir on a beach in Mexico, you're not telling that person, you know, that you're buying the silver bracelet from there. You're like, hey, please take all the money in my pocket. Feel free to take advantage of everything. You're trying to get the best possible price and they don't want to give you it for free or lose money on it. And here's the fact, they are not going to do it for you in a way that is going to harm them. If you're asking for something that's too much, they're going to tell you no, they're going to push back. And I think once you adopt that mindset and go, I'm not trying to bankrupt them, I'm just trying to get the best possible deal, something that is acceptable to the other party. Even in those competitive situations where it is about win-lose, you're not making them lose so much that you're hurting them. You're just saying, I'm trying to maximize the pie here and they're trying to do the same thing. I'm not going to lose my own expense for their sake, but both of us can walk away satisfied here. And I just think it's that competitive aura that makes people super, super uncomfortable. But if you can just go, hey, they're going to say no. I'm not going to bankrupt them. They're not going to go out of business just because I've asked for a little bit more. They can always afford to say no. So bringing it back just a little bit further than you were around a family where negotiations were just sort of a learned behavior, part of your everyday. As you start developing in your professional career, you, you find out that you have a knack for this. You mentioned that you light up when you're on stage in front of people. So 
I'm curious to better understand the why of why you decided to really devote your life to helping people maximize their negotiation skills. Obviously, this is something that's always been kind of a part of your life and you have an interest in sharing knowledge and helping people. But how did this become what it is now? I went through some challenging circumstances in my career. So, you know, I'm not a six foot plus tall white male. <laughs> and as a result of that, I was treated a little bit differently wherever I went. I was constantly the youngest one at the boardroom table. I was constantly the only female at the boardroom table. And as a result of that, you know, I went through some of the stereotypical circumstances that we hear about for women in business. And I felt vindicated when I went through it and came out the other side. I felt like I wanted to prevent other people from dealing with that. And so it really all started because at least the public speaking part of the whole thing started because some women's groups reached out and said, how are you doing what you're doing and how can you teach the rest of us? And I'm like, what am I doing that's so unique? And they said, well, how do you get a room full of men to put their phones down and listen to you? How do you get them to take you seriously incredibly? And I started to do more research around women in negotiation specifically. And I learned that I had adopted some good habits that were certainly helping me there. I really just started responding to the women who were asking me these questions and when I was asked to come and step in front of a room of them, I just found like, oh, this is kind of awesome. And I would get these success stories that people would send me afterwards going, hey, I got $20,000 more as a result of the advice that I heard in your session, or I finally stood up to that person, or I can finally charge what I'm worth for this service that I'm doing. And that just fueled me to want to keep going and keep going and keep going. And it's not just women that I help. Like, I mean, I teach MBA students over at the Schulich School of Business, and I enjoy teaching all of them, not just the females. But it's about watching people make a change and watching people create something that wasn't there before, a mindset that, oh, it's okay for me to go after what I want. And I don't have to do it in a way where I'm bullying people. And I don't have to do it in a way where I back away from challenging situations. There's an opportunity to do some good in the world. And when I saw that open up, I started going for it. It wasn't a conscious decision. It just kind of evolved naturally where I just really enjoy empowering others. That's really cool. I've listened to some of your interviews or read some interviews and um, you've talked about reading the room and you've talked about sort of adjusting your style and understanding who you're speaking to and that certain words and certain phrases and certain manners of speaking would work better in certain environments than others. You had mentioned that you had worked in an environment in the past where maybe you felt a little bit stifled or where you didn't feel like your voice was heard as loud as it could have been and you came out the other side. So I'm wondering if you can help us and help anyone listening to this understand what that meant in terms of coming out on the other side and then understanding how to diversify your speaking style and how to diversify the way that you communicate so that you can maximize each different conversation you have with different people from different backgrounds, with different interests. There's a lot of different people out there, but you seem to have sort of cracked the code on how to communicate with different people. I think a lot of it for me became intuitive. And then when I started doing the research, I was like, oh, that's what I did. That's why that worked. So I kind of did it backwards. <laughs> and so part of my, my job now is to help people find the formula before they start making some of those mistakes. But the reason it evolved, or I guess the light bulb moment was, I was working for a company that was running these intensive, structured, scripted four day workshops. And so I was the only female in the company running these intensive workshops. And I was given like a 400 page script that I needed to memorize. And I spent two months shadowing a bunch of guys all over North America, actually even all over the globe, watching them do it, rehearsing it, videotaping myself, breaking it down with one of my peers or mentors and, you know, nailing it so that I could be 
ready to go out there and do it myself. And the second I went there and did it myself with an audience, with a bunch of clients, the response to the lines in that script were so different than the response that the six foot tall white dudes were getting. And I went, oh, this is not going over the way I expected it to go over. What was the nature of the script? Well, part of it, it was about teaching people the lessons of the behavioral science. So making people uncomfortable, saying things that would be perceived on the competitive side of negotiation versus on the collaborative side of negotiation. And as a female and somebody who's, you know, five foot five, they were expecting me to show up and be smiling and warm and fuzzy and welcoming. And I wasn't any of those things intentionally. And when you see that coming from a tall, middle-aged man in a power suit, it's almost acceptable or expected in a way. It's not shocking. But when you see that coming from a petite woman who looks quite young, at least I did at the time, you're going, wait, I feel like you should be like a secretary right now. And yet you're seeming very authoritative. And this is not my expectation. And this makes me really uncomfortable. And I'm going to lash out at you as a result of that. In the absence of the warmth that people were expecting, it was perceived as rude or bitchy or any of those things. So I found that, okay, what is unwarm, let's say, is going to look different coming from me than it will coming from a six foot tall male. So I started to adjust the script for me. And I got to play with a little bit of trial and error. And then, as I said, I did some research and I started to understand why are they reacting to me differently than the way that they're reacting to somebody else. And so I had that opportunity to be able to see it anecdotally with my own eyes and then back it up with the research to go, oh, that's exactly what happened when I was doing it. As soon as I read a book about it, it was like, "Uh uh-huh. That makes total sense now. It was understanding that and really just listening and paying super attention to how people were responding that allowed me to just keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking until I found a style that worked credibly without being overly authoritative, that was firm without being perceived as rude. I get people ask me for advice all the time, like, what do I say and how do I say it? And I'll say, you know, here's how I would do it. And coming out of my mouth, it might sound like this. But coming out of your mouth, who is your audience? I don't know the people that you're dealing with specifically. So I'm going to be thinking about how do I think this person would respond to me? If I were in their shoes, what are their expectations of me? How do I need to manage their expectations? What can I do to prevent some of those expectations and so on? So it's really about the individual. There are guidelines. Absolutely. I give advice all the time around some of the guiding principles of negotiation, but it's really about thinking about the very specific audience that you're dealing with. I know when I walk into a room full of women at a women's event, they're going to be laughing at my jokes a lot more. I can afford to be a little bit warmer. When I walk into a mixed audience or an audience that's predominantly male, I might look a little bit more authoritative or credible in the very beginning because they're going to be going, "Mm, why does she have the authority to do this? And I don't think they consciously know that they're doing that. That's just a reality of they're not used to seeing somebody who looks like me showing up and giving them that advice. Fotini, it's so interesting that we are touching upon this topic, especially given the current social climate that we're dealing with right now. The first time I saw you was actually at a women's event. It was encouraging women to lean in. And you were part of this incredible panel talking about this very topic. And I'm curious, you know, is it important for us to be mindful of these usual 
behaviors, reactions, perspectives coming from different sides of the equation. And by that, I mean genders. Is this something that we really do need to be mindful of every time we walk into a room and how to conduct ourselves accordingly? I'm going to be really careful about how I answer this because I don't want people assuming, oh God, my brain has to be on overdrive at all times, (laughs) no matter what I do. But I think mindfulness in general, whether you are walking into a room with the opposite gender, whether you are walking to a room full of children, whether you're walking into a bus full of people, I think just being aware of your circumstances in general is always going to be helpful. And so I take that into account no matter which audience I'm dealing with. If I'm dealing with a concrete company in Kingston, like I was a few weeks ago, versus a bunch of uh, female truckers, like I was a couple days later, I'm going to be mindful of who is this audience? What is the language that I want to be using here in order to make sure I get through and have maximum effect? If I'm in the MBA classroom, my language might sound a little bit different. And it's not inauthentic. It's not changing who I am, but it's going, I might not be using the academic words in a place where they're going to be struggling to keep up with me because those are unfamiliar words to me, to them rather. And it's the same way that if I go into a gendered group, if it's male or female, I'm going to think about my examples that make a little bit more sense to one group versus the other. I did an empowerment camp last summer for a bunch of 11 to 14 year old girls. And I had to adjust my style and my language and my examples and my anecdotes for that group as well, because they wouldn't be able to relate to the examples that I was giving in the boardroom. So I started including a picture of Beyonce in all of my slides, because that was a role model that they could identify with more than the female head of the IMF. You know, that just didn't resonate with that group. I talk about power poses. So it's choosing a visual of, you know, modern day Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot versus the 1970s or 80s Wonder Woman. Because if I use the old one, certain audiences are not going to have any idea what I'm talking about. So I just think you adjust your tone to make sure that you get maximum effect with the audience. But I think that's a really fine balance of making sure you don't lose your authenticity either. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And um, knowing your audience for anybody that's getting up in front of people makes good sense to be able to adjust. That's just a tricky thing. Obviously, you've really become really good at that and also highlighted a bunch of different tips and tricks that people can follow to kind of do the same. I want to dig into the question of sort of gender relations a little bit further because I think I'm in an interesting position. So I'm six foot on the button and I'm a white male. And then at the same time, I think I come from a different sort of background from the sense that my dad's from a family of 15. He had nine sisters. My mom has two sisters. All three of them are very highly educated. My mom's a doctor. She was a breadwinner in our family. I was around really strong women my whole life. It's all I've ever known, really. It was always women kind of asserting themselves in the household, but also business-wise, just really, really impressive, strong women my whole life. I've been surrounded by them. So that was just normal to me. That was just kind of the way it was. But then I do remember there were times growing up where maybe I'd go over to my friend's house and I would hear conversations where it would sort of raise an antenna, even in my like 12 year old brain, like, huh, that was weird. They talked to their mom different than I talked to my mom. You know, sometimes as I would get a little bit older, you're mentioning like in the workplace that maybe in certain environments or cultures that women might not have the same opportunity or they might not have the same voice that the equivalent man might have. And that kind of thing was weird to me too, because My mom negotiated for pay equity for like 20 years for the Dufferin Peel School Board, and she finally got it before she retired. But that was like a fight I had known about my whole life. We would talk about it at dinner. We would talk about her negotiations and those approaches communicating with other board members and and trying to find balance in that. So I can relate to so many different things that you bring up here. And yet at the end of the day, I am that six foot white male. So there's some inherent privilege that comes along 
with that for sure. I'm curious if you are noticing a shift in the mentality and in the mindset of corporate culture amongst men, amongst young people that are now entering the workplace. Do you find that in this kind of more modern world where there's a push towards gender fluidity and where um, the roles of men and women in the traditional sense are being challenged, do you think that some of the old traditions that you experience and that you talk about are changing or do you still find that these things are still quite set in stone? I don't think they're set in stone and I am absolutely optimistic for the future and it's because of people who have experiences like yours. So my experience was I didn't have female role models who had any education. My mother was considered the most educated women in my community growing up because she finished high school. So I didn't have other people to even know who to ask about university and career paths and all that kind of stuff. We kind of fumbled through it in my family to figure out what is this MBA degree people keep talking about. It's wonderful to hear that you had a different experience. And when I look at my MBA students, the fact that my class has a wait list and I'm a female teaching it says something about the general audiences now, because it's not as if my class is predominantly female. It's not. It's still you know, predominantly male. And they come from every part of the world. I have a lot of students from India and China in my classes. And those are cultures where, you know, women don't necessarily make the decisions, or at least what I'm understanding from the the students in my class. So the fact that they're lining up from my class says that, okay, they're willing to, you know, see something beyond what were the gender norms when I was growing up. And I don't think that the people that I work with today are as extreme in their thinking as the people that I worked with a few years ago, whether it was my clients or even my colleagues or my bosses. I do think there's a new generation coming. I don't think they're 100% evolved, but I definitely think it's better, even if it's baby steps that's cool with me. Maybe it's because of the people I surround myself with and the tribe that I attract. I get heavily involved in women's groups. Specifically, I work closely with the network of executive women. And I just came back from their annual summit in Atlanta. And one of the awards that they give out every year at their annual summit is the Male Ally Award. You know, I've had interesting discussions about this because some of the people I talk to are like, I don't understand why we're awarding men who are doing the things that they're just supposed to be doing to be a good human being. (laughs) And so I, I don't think we're at a place where we can completely say, okay, we don't need that award anymore. I think we need to put a spotlight on the men who are role modeling how you should be behaving in this new world where women are supposed to be considered equal. And the more we see that and the more we see female role models like me who are on stage or talking about certain subjects, the more it's normalized. In your home, it was normalized. And that's so amazing. In most homes, it's not normalized yet, but we are getting there. So I think we're taking baby steps. I do see bits and and pieces of improvement, but the research shows us we still have decades and decades to go before women are truly considered equal. And I think you see that even in social settings as well. Like I go into some of my friends' homes where it's an equal partnership and, you know, in the heterosexual marriages, they both take care of the kids and they both, you know, worry about daycare and things like that. In many other homes, though, that I'm in, it still falls predominantly on the female to be superwoman and do the cooking and cleaning and so on. But, you know, over a decade ago, it would have been all of those homes. It would have been a very different divide versus at least I have a few more of those mixes in my groups now. And we'll get there, but it's going to take a really long time to get all the way there. Botini, we actually share a similar upbringing in that my mother and my aunts, they have high school degrees. They didn't go to college afterwards or pursue any post-secondary education. And so I grew up 
in a family where, yes, education was definitely a priority. And my dad would always tell me to speak up for myself, but I never saw that at home. So environmentally, that wasn't shown to me as a prime example. So it kind of got lost in the shuffle. And so he would tell me to speak up for myself, but then he'd also tell me to never rock the boat. So oftentimes, I think we generally think that negotiating can lead to you know, a misunderstanding or even worse, a fight professionally or in our personal lives. Is there a way to kind of avoid those sticky situations by speaking up for what we believe in? Yeah, one of the tools that I advise for people, and particularly I find it most helpful for the women in my audiences. I mean, I was having this conversation recently with a friend who was telling me about how she communicates with her husband. And, you know, if someone does something, you don't go, I don't think that's a very good idea, or here's how I would handle that. If you can approach it by asking a question, and it's not a, I'm in, too intimidated to talk to you type of question. It's a, an inquisitive, a curious question of like, what caused you to do that? And if you can get to, you know, that discourse and help them to share that, then when you get to the root of their intention and their motivation, it's much easier to understand that and then have a, a fruitful discussion coming out of it. So even with my father, you know, my dad sounds very similar to yours. You know, even though I was encouraged, go get an education, go stand up for yourself. My dad and I would still butt heads because we were so damn similar. And as I started studying the subject of negotiation and human behavior a lot more, my relationship would improve dramatically. And we have fewer and fewer fights because we used to have those fights even on the phone when I wasn't living at home. But now it's going, okay, dad, what made you do that? Or why do you think that's a great idea? Or what caused you to go down that path? And if he gives me his intention, I can go, oh, well, have you thought about this other way to achieve that same intention? Or how do you think you know, my sister, or my mom, or your brother would respond to doing it this way, instead of saying, here's how you should actually be doing it. No one likes to be given orders. No one likes to be told what to do. But they want to be someone who you take interest in. They want to be listened to. So asking things in the form of questions can get you a lot further sometimes than giving orders. I put it with this caveat of, that doesn't mean you're letting them get away with stuff. Your questions are really intentional. And it's directing the conversation in the way that you want it to go versus just going, okay, I'll ask a question. And then I feel as though I, I spoke up, but I didn't really speak up. You are being really intentional and following up and probing even further. And they're going to feel really good about sharing with you if you ask it in a way that doesn't seem combative, that doesn't seem like they have to get their defenses up and so on. So there's a difference between saying, why'd you do that? And people get really defensive. And what caused you to go down that path? Or what was it about that solution that appealed to you the most? Those are two very similar questions in terms of what we want to get out of people, but the approach is really different. One is more combative or defensive than the other. One thing that kind of stands out as I'm listening to you there is, seems like a general curiosity in the interests of the other person. And you mentioned the motivations. What role does curiosity play in being a good negotiator and in trying to find mutually beneficial outcomes for both parties? Maybe I'm inferring too much, but just based on what you mentioned, it sounds like being curious kind of gets to the root of where that other person is coming from, why they feel the way they feel, and how there might be alternate ways to find a resolution that works for everybody. I mean, if you're ever going to get out of that competitive, you know, feeling like a bloodbath, stepping into the ring type of negotiation, it's curiosity that's going to get you out of the ring and into a discussion. And so I always tell people, if you can just be curious, if you can go in with a curious mindset, that's when you discover information. That's when you discover knowledge about the other person, their intentions, and so on. And you know what? Knowledge is power. 
So how else are you going to get it? But by being curious, by learning more about them. Even if I'm buying that souvenir on the beach in Mexico, if I start asking questions about, you know, where was it made? How far did you have to come here today? Now I'm going to know a little bit more about, well, he doesn't want to drag all these things back or, you know, it's going to be, I can't afford to, you know, lowball him that far or here's where I think he's going to be finding this price acceptable. All of those things come from, having that curiosity and going, where's this person coming from right now? What is their experience and why did that lead them to this particular conclusion? And then I have a knowledge to build a path around that to get to the best possible solution. Fotini, I'm going to be very honest with you because this is what we do here on the podcast. I would have to say that I've become pretty good, I'd say, at negotiating in my professional life. In my personal life, not so much, which is kind of strange to me. You know, especially in romantic relationships, I find that maybe it's a communication barrier, but it's harder for me to speak up in my personal life than it is in business. Is there a difference between negotiating in the workplace and at home? There's really not, but there is a mindset difference. So what you have just shared with me is typical of what I see in the research around women in negotiation. Women will always fight harder for others than they will for themselves. And so if you're in the workplace and there are other people who are depending on the outcome of your negotiation, then yeah, you're going to work your butt off to make sure that you serve everybody really well. But you're the first person to sacrifice yourself. And where do you sacrifice yourself? At home. I mean, even when you're, when you're negotiating for salary, you know, ultimately in the back of our minds, we know that if I don't do this, it's going to affect every woman who comes after me or every part of my team or whatever that's going to be. So I still think even in a salary world, we will fight harder for ourselves than we will for some of the other things at home because there are implications for others around us. When the implications are only for ourselves, especially as women, like I said, the research says this, but it, this could be true for men as well. I don't know. We don't fight as hard. And a lot of that comes from fear because, you know, there's a lot more at stake at home. I have to live with this person. I have to sleep next to this person. I have to deal with this person. I have to deal with them for the next 25 years or more. There's all these things at stake here. Maybe it's not worth it for this battle. And then you go, okay, well, this battle either. And then not this one. And then you just keep letting things go. And eventually things blow up and you're full of resentment, all because you didn't speak up earlier. And they, you've set now a new expectation for them. So like, if you're constantly allowing them to choose date night. And then all of a sudden, six months later, they're like, wait, what do you mean you're not, you don't want to go with my opinion? You've always gone with my opinion all this far. That's an expectation management that now needs to change. That's not detrimental to the relationship, but it's those little expectations that we set when we don't speak up and use our voice. When I do these talks and I do these workshops and sessions, the moment I give people that tool where I don't have to be perceived as combative, when I give them the form of questions instead of feeling like I have to come out swinging, because that's the association people have with negotiation, all of a sudden it makes it easier to have those discussions. At the end of the semester, when I teach my MBA classes, all of my students have to give me a reflection paper. So I have 45 papers to read at the end of the semester. It's exhausting, but also the most rewarding thing that I cannot pass off to a marker or a TA because I love reading them. And one of the things that's most interesting to me is any of my students who are in relationships or even marriages, they're always sharing with me success stories about, I approach this a little bit differently with my wife or my husband or my boyfriend or my partner. And instead of getting into a fight, we managed to have a much better discussion and things are going a lot smoother at home. And that for me is so uplifting because it means that we've taken the fear out of having a conversation. And that's all negotiation has to be. 
But if you feel like it's got to be combative, then you need to check your mindset and go, okay, what can I do to make this less combative? Maybe it's asking a question. Maybe it's giving it a little bit more time so I've cooled off and I'm not coming at it with a different tone. You know, there's lots of things that you can do to, to change the way that the conversation happens. Okay, so this is really fascinating to me. And so the next thing I'm curious to understand is, okay, so let's say in the dynamic between a relationship, in this case, we'll call it a romantic one. Oftentimes, there might be one person that imposes their will a little bit more than the other. And at some point, that other person might then assert themselves and you try to find a balance and, and you hope that you do. In this scenario, or even in business, if you find yourself in a scenario with a coworker, with somebody that you're in a relationship with, a friend, a husband, a wife, whatever, and you find that you feel a bit overpowered, or you feel like your voice isn't quite being heard as loud as you might want it to, or you, you just feel subdued in some kind of way, what are some uh, communication tools that you could use to help balance that out? So I would say this is likely what a marriage counselor would tell you as well. You know, I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a doctor of any kind. <laughs> I lean on the theory of starting with why. And if you've ever heard of Simon Sinek, he is a leadership, uh, let's call him a guru, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. He has one of the most viewed TED Talks, and it's called How Great Leaders Inspire Action, something like that. The cornerstone of that TED Talk, and he has a book on the same subject, is the start with why. It's the golden circle. And so if you can imagine three rings in the circle, the outer circle is the what, the middle circle is the how, and the center circle is the why. And we, I believe, are wired to start with the what. Here's what I want. Here's my proposal. And then we'll go, well, here's how we're going to accomplish that. And then we'll finish with, here's why I want that. When we start that way, people get really defensive and they go, why do you want that from me right now? And I use that in the boardroom all the time. Like I used to work for L'Oreal. So if I was going in to talk to my buyers at Walmart and I said, I want you to buy a million units of this mascara, they'd be like, you're a greedy supplier. I'm going to tune you out right now. Everybody's asking me for that kind of stuff all the time. You think I'm made of money. But if I said, I have a way to increase the overall sales of the entire department, not just my products. They'd be like, oh, tell me more. If I start with the why, the why is, you know, this mascara or whatever it is, is going to make people buy not just that product, but eye makeup remover and wipes and all of these other things. It's going to draw a lot of sales to the entire department. They're going, tell me more about that. Okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to ship these things in on such and such a date when TV and media are happening and so on and so forth. Okay, so what I need you to do is buy a million units of this on you know, June 1st or whatever it is. I've now started with the why, something that's appealing to them that they have to have an engagement about and then finished with the how and the what. So if I relate that at home, if you can start with the why, that's going to be compelling to the other person. Why should they care about what you're going to say? If you were to say something like, I feel as though I'm not valued in this relationship and it's making me want to pull away. That is something that should make them want to be engaged. Well, if you're pulling away, that doesn't serve them very well. But if you go in and go, you're doing this and this is what I want. Now you're pointing a finger at them. You're blaming them for something. But start with that why. Why should they want to engage with you? How does that affect them? How does your feeling affect that particular person? It's not about pointing fingers. It's about going, here's why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving right now. Here's why I'm not interested in going out for dinner or I don't want to go to that party and so on. I think if you can start with that, again, that motivation and that intention, if you can help them to understand what your intention is and how that affects them and vice versa, I think that's a more engaging way to communicate with each other versus this is what I need from you right now. Why should I care about what you need from me right now? How's that serving me? Start with a why that's going to go, hey, 
I want to find a way that we're going to have more peace at home or we're not scrambling to get out the door every morning or I want to minimize the way, you know, how much the kids are screaming at us every single day or whatever that might look like. Or I want to minimize the amount of fights that we're having. Even that why can be very compelling. And they'll go, okay, tell me more about it. Well, here's how we do that. Right now, the way things are working, I'm feeling quite defensive about this, or I don't have enough time. You don't, I don't have enough warning in order to get ready or do this and this and this, or I'm overwhelmed because I'm always the one cooking dinner and I don't have enough time in the day to get from home to here and I'm starving and I get angry. You know, if you can start to do that, then you've started with the right intention that gets them on board, a why that's appealing to them. Now you can finish the conversation and talk about the how and the what, like how do we actually get to that? what that's going to solve our problem. So it's all about how great leaders inspire action. And when you think about it, leaders are people who have folks who want to follow them. And if they're following you, that means they're following your ideas. That means they're in agreement with you. And when I bring that back to negotiation, if you're following me and you're in agreement with me, that means that we don't even have to have a negotiation anymore. Now we're just on board with each other and there's no conflict to manage. So we can prevent a lot of conflict and prevent a lot of negotiating by just being more mindful of how it is that we negotiate by starting with that why component. And it comes back to, again, that curiosity. Why should they care? Why should they want to have this conversation with me right now? How does this serve them in addition to just me? Fotini, you're writing a book, right? I am. It's in the editor's hands right now. And uh, it's been crushing my soul for the last six months. I don't know if this is too forward, but can we have an advanced copy? Yeah. If you can um, remind me, I will absolutely get you an advanced copy. Speaking of you know leaders and agreeing with their thought process, this is, I mean, I can't tell you how much I agree with everything that you're saying. And you work with Fortune 500 executives and their teams to, you know, achieve these objectives through negotiation and, you know, strengthening the lines of communication. And it really does sound like negotiating is a skill that we can all acquire. And you had mentioned that before. But as you know, a skill is something that we all need to actively work to acquire. So how do we how do we practice? How do we work on becoming skilled negotiators every day? Is there a place to start? I would say it's how do you keep it top of mind? So reading is a really great way to do that. I love audiobooks and that's how I get more a lot of my reading done. I love reading about the subject. I will always be sharing stuff on LinkedIn or Instagram as well. Having that as part of your vocabulary, having it as part of the dialogue that you have every single day keeps it top of mind. So it's one thing for me to tell you this once. It's another thing for you to hear me say it, to read it in a book, to read it in an article, to hear it in a podcast, to see it on Instagram Q&As and lives. Now it's a repeating pattern in your brain that your brain is going to absorb. So you need to immerse yourself in it, however you want to do that, whatever medium you choose. The other thing is actually going and practicing it. So, you know, the next time you're at Best Buy, see if you can get a discount, see if you can get a free battery or cable or something like that to go with whatever it is you're seeking. Go to the market every once in a while and and see what you can negotiate at the farmer's market every Saturday. There's lots of opportunities to do that. I'd say the best way to practice is if you have children in your life, whether they're yours or someone else's, have a conversation with them. And I guarantee you will get into at least one to two negotiations per hour. And I swear to you, spending time around kids will make you a really great negotiator if you go in with that mindset of going, oh yeah, they're trying to get something out of me all the time. They're negotiating for your attention. They're asking for ice cream and presents and stuff like that all the time. And they are doing it with no inhibition whatsoever. So you're working with lots of raw material there. I can relate to that, by the way. My son's only four months old, but yeah, it's certain. It's certain for sure. I'm certain to sense that one. I have one more 
question, which is about a question. So if curiosity is at the root of understanding the interests of another person and their motivations and how to get to the core of what they want, half the battle. But the other thing is sometimes people just don't want to talk. Sometimes they just clam up, they shut down, they're uncomfortable, they don't like you, or maybe they're having a bad day, they had an argument with someone before they met you, whatever. There's a million different reasons why that might be the case, or it might just be somebody that hasn't learned to effectively express their emotions. When you're dealing with somebody and you're having a hard time getting to the root of what they want, what's a question you can ask or what's something that can be done to help break down those walls? So I think it starts with before you even start that conversation. I lean on the principles of persuasion all the time. And uh, Robert Cialdini is a great author and researcher on the subject. And he's written a bunch of stuff about this. But one of the things that he talks about is the principle of likability. And we want to deal with people that we like. It goes back to that tribal thing. We're cavemen and cave women, and we're not meant to be loners on this earth. We're meant to be around people. We like people who are similar to us, have something in common with us. We like people who pay us genuine compliments, and we like people who are cooperative. So if you go in there and you start right away hammering them with questions and proposals and so on, and you haven't given them a chance to want to deal with you, it's going to be really hard to get them to open up. If, however, you've done something that can create just a little tiny micro bond with them, find something in common. Oh, you went to this school. I went to that school. Oh, you wear glasses. I have really similar ones to that. There can be something teeny tiny that starts to open up a tiny little connection. And it's not a manipulative disarm them. It's about finding an opening to now just have a more appropriate conversation, um, a more open conversation. That doesn't mean you're going to become bosom buddies and you're not trying to, you know, butter them up. But, you know, even a simple compliment of I'm so impressed by the diplomas on the wall or your office is really tidy. <laughs> like something as simple and silly as that, a compliment like that before you get into a discussion can make them feel good about wanting to interact with you. It, it's just that I want, I desire to spend some time around this person and therefore I'm going to entertain them perhaps more than I would have had this not happened. But if you go in there and you start immediately proposing something or even you're sending an email, you're sending an email going, hey, Tom, here's what I need. Let me know when you can get back to me. Bye. And you go, who the hell is this? Why should I want to do anything for her? But just spending that second to go, hey, Tom, hope you're having a great day or appreciate the quick follow-up. Now I appear to be cooperative. We like people who are cooperative. You're going to want to read the next sentence and see if you want to engage with me versus shutting me down because this woman's not cooperative. I have nothing in common with her and she hasn't paid me any compliments. So I don't really want to deal with her. If there's someone else that I like better and whose attention I enjoy better, then that time and energy is going to go to the other person versus her. And I can tell you from personal experience, the reason I have my business, I quit my job without a plan. It's the most crazy thing I've ever done in my life. But I also knew I had a lot of clients in the past who had said to me, hey, we want to be the first call when you quit. Like when you leave that company, we want to make sure we're the first phone call. So I knew I had enough people who liked me. And then when they invited me to come back and keep working with them, you know, in other capacities, whether it was training, consulting, whatever that was, they would actually tell me, we like dealing with you more than we like dealing with that other guy. And that is the entire reason 
I have a job today that I am self-employed. So it's that likability factor. It doesn't mean we're going to go on vacation together and hit the bar and start having some shots together. You don't need to get to that level of likability, just enough to get them to like you enough to want to have that conversation. And so I would think about what am I doing in advance of this conversation to smooth out that opportunity? And if it's going really poorly and I realize, you know what, maybe we didn't build enough of a bond, you might want to take a pause and go, you know what, maybe this isn't a great time for us to have this conversation. Maybe we'll take a a beat and I'm going to give you some time back and I'm going to think about what else could be more appropriate for us to discuss. That is a demonstration of cooperation again. You're not trying to time suck all of my valuable time away from me. You're not trying to waste my time. You're demonstrating cooperativeness. So I might actually want to come back to talk to you after a break. That's really interesting. And I likability, I think, is super underrated. And I feel like a lot of people that I've seen in business that have success with that are very detail oriented and will like somebody will walk into a room and notice that somebody is wearing blue shoes with red laces and be like, oh, those are really cool laces that you have in your shoes. And then you'll see the person light up on the other end because you can tell immediately that they were probably intentionally done and that they probably care about their shoes a lot. And somebody actually noticed that tiny little thing that they didn't think anyone else would. Yeah. And it's got to be an authentic compliment too, right? Like if I walked in wearing flip-flops and you said to me, cool shoes, I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, what do you want from me? (laughs) I'm not going to trust you. But if you've paid a little bit of attention to me in a way that is authentic, then I want to give you more of my attention. I love that this conversation has turned into the art of connection. It's so important. You know, a lot of things are dependent on relationships and it goes back to what you mentioned with Simon Sinek and starting with the why. You know, I might gravitate towards you more of versus the next negotiation expert because of why you're doing it and why you're so passionate about helping your students and kind of inspiring the next generation. I love that. And I I appreciate that. And and I think my genuine care for wanting to make people do better is what makes me want to be better as well. And I think that creates a bond with every person in my audience because, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without my audience. And I want to make sure that I continue to serve them well and, and they keep you know, rewarding me, which is, it's been an amazing experience. So to wrap things up, which is, this is, I think, a really nice segue. Why do you think you're going to continue doing this? Or will you be continuing this journey in negotiating? I will do it. It's going to come in different shapes and forms. I just love it. I mean, I really love helping people not just solve problems. It's that whole thing of like, give a man to fish and he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish and he'll be able to eat for a lifetime. I want to make my job unnecessary. I want to make people be able to do it for themselves instead of needing my help on every single little problem. I get so much intrinsic reward out of that, that I mean, I find it amazing that I get paid to do what I do for a living. How awesome is that? I will do it until I burn out. (laughs) And I hopefully will prevent myself from burning out by finding other ways to connect with audiences. So the book is a big piece of that. Online courses in 2020 will be a big piece of that. And then just being more mindful of, of managing my time more effectively. Like I can't say yes to every gig anymore because I absolutely will burn out. You've followed me on Instagram to know that I've been all over the place this fall. Yeah, for me, I'll keep doing it and I'll find new and inventive ways to keep connecting with people and keep sharing that information. So even like I get lots of people asking me if I can coach them personally. And my answer is no, because I don't want to parcel up my time into one-on-one coaching. I find that really exhausting and it prevents me from being able to serve more people. But what I do is I take questions on Instagram all the time. So if someone sends me a question that I can then share with a wider audience, it's not helping one person, it's serving a whole bunch of people. So if you follow me on Instagram, I do have lots of Q&As saved in my stories. So I'm finding ways to manage my energy a bit more effectively, but I still want to keep doing what I'm doing. It just might look a little different. That is a fact because I do follow you on Instagram and I've noticed that you do squeeze time in your 
crazy travel schedule at the airport answering every single one of your DM questions, which is fantastic. Because all those questions are questions I think we're all asking ourselves and hoping that we'll get that one-on-one time with you. But we really appreciate the time that you've spent with us. And I almost feel like I've had a personal session. Yeah, no, this was amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. And I I was obviously uh, familiar with your work previously, but it's very cool to get a chance to speak with you and really appreciate your time today. I'm so glad to be able to share some of this with your audience. Like I think, again, this is a great way to amplify the messages and teach all these people to fish and we'll see what comes from it. I hope that people reach out and start sharing their success stories as well. And Fotini, before we let you go, when can we expect your book? I'm just waiting on a final date from the publisher, but it will be fall 2020. So apparently you have to have your book completely done a year in advance of it hitting the shelves. So stay tuned for more information in uh, the back half of 2020. We definitely will stay tuned. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 